0: This is episode four of the Angry Tech News podcast for Friday, October 1st, 2021 at angrytechnews.com. I'm your host, Ryan Bemrose. This is the Angry Tech News podcast at angrytechnews.com.
1: Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Ryan Bemrose.
0: Actually, you may have noticed, and a couple people who sent me notes have, that the show is coming out a couple days late. I had to take a mulligan for technical reasons, and I didn't get time to re-record until Monday. I was warned that doing a solo show is hard work, and I haven't quite nailed down my workflow. I should warn you that this is another Apple-heavy episode. I'm not intentionally trying to turn this show into the angry Apple tech news, but the company just keeps doing rant-worthy things and hitting the news cycle. And since the news is what we're here to report, here we go. From the old-fashioned fishing department, Apple AirTags are a small device created by Apple that you can attach to your luggage or bags, electronic devices, or just put one on your keyring. Apple released these back in April, and the idea is that if you lose the device, along with whatever item of value you had it attached to, you can find it again using Apple's impressive surveillance and tracking apparatus. The devices plug into the Apple's Find My Network, a global mesh network consisting of every Apple device everywhere connected to each other using ultra wideband and Bluetooth low energy and constantly reporting their locations to Apple to be stored in a database somewhere in Silicon Valley. The selling point behind the network is that on the one day a year that you misplace your phone or whatever you have tagged, Apple services can, in a triumph of convenience, quickly find its location, direct you to it via an app and even make it beep at you. What Apple uses all of the location data to collect the other 364 days out of the year, they don't say. But if what I just described doesn't strike you as a recipe for a dystopian privacy nightmare, then you haven't been paying attention to this show. The AirTags have another feature as well. If someone finds it by looking for random Apple-branded Bluetooth devices and scans it using NFC, the would-be good Samaritan will be given your phone number and a personalized message, presumably so they can call you and get it back to you. Hey, points to Apple for not restricting it to only Apple users. It works with any NFC-enabled Android phone, too. The tag also includes a link to found.apple.com, which you can click to contact the owner through Apple's proprietary channels. Apple wants you to think of AirTags as the digital version of a luggage tag. There's some sense in this. Many people today can't even be bothered to look up from their phones long enough to read a physical tag. So let's move that tag data onto their phone and into their field of attention. And so much the better if that interaction can be recorded and cataloged into a database in Silicon Valley to be aggregated and sold to advertisers. Modern problems require modern solutions. Of course, the AirTags have been met with controversy from the usual privacy advocates. For one, they point out that Apple obviously cannot guarantee that the person who finds your bag and scans the tag is a good Samaritan and might do something nefarious if they got a hold of your contact info. There is little that prevents a would-be stalker from NFC tapping the tag while the bag is next to you at the airport terminal and then calling you at home to ask what you're wearing. Personally, I'd be flattered if that happened to me, but not everyone likes that kind of attention, and let's be honest, it is legitimately creepy behavior. Still, I don't put that on Apple, since the problem exists with non-digitally tagged luggage as well, and Apple does keenly want to appear sensitive to the privacy issues— For example, they do take steps to mitigate the spy novel scenario of planting an AirTag on another iPhone user to track their movements. If Apple detects an iPhone and a non-attached AirTag moving together, they will send an alert to the phone, presumably in order to stop the obvious redundancy of having to track the same person twice. If the target is an Android user, you can track them for three days before the AirTag becomes lonely for its connected iPhone and starts making an audible noise that can be silenced from the owner's app, a page on Apple.com, or any nearby heavy object. There are still scenarios that Apple hasn't quite locked down. In June, a security researcher named Bobby Roche reported that to Apple that AirTags could be used as a phishing vector against the person who finds a tag. The idea is that by injecting a malicious payload into the phone number and personalized message fields, the AirTag can execute a cross-site scripting attack on found.apple.com and direct an unsuspecting Samaritan to a malicious website where they can be fished for their iCloud account credentials, click-jacked, or having their logged-in session tokens stolen. The internet can be a hostile place. Use your imagination. I do need to quibble a little bit about this vulnerability. On a technical level, it is a security faux pas that involves taking user-controlled data and treating it as privileged. Apple needs to fix this. You don't just hand an adversary a persistent storage device and assume that the data is good on the other end. But from a practical standpoint, the threat is not much different from a QR code or tag reader or just sending people to a bit.ly or t.co link. You're directing somebody to an arbitrary place on the net and asking them for sensitive information. And people need to be wary of this. This is on regular Internet users. Side ramp. Years ago, when Microsoft thought they could get into the tag game and made that QR code competitor made up of all the colored triangles, they also controlled the only app that was available to read them. The way the app worked was that you hit the scan button and scanned a code. If the code contained a URL, the app would immediately launch that URL in the system's default browser. I had an interesting exchange with the product team in charge of the app where I pointed out that I would like a mode where I could see the decoded URL before launching it. My argument is that if the URL goes to a page with the domain of virus.malware.site asking for my Microsoft credentials or honestly just any site that I don't need to burn a few megabytes of mobile data to see, I'd like a chance to abort that before launching the browser. This struck them as a ludicrous request. What else do you do with a URL but launch it? I pointed out the security concerns when scanning random tags in the wild and was assured that most URLs are safe. As long as your browser is fully patched, nothing could go wrong. In the end, we agreed to disagree, and that was the end of my scanning tags with their app. In classic Apple form, Roche received the standard we're working on it response when he reported the bug to them, followed by three months of deafening silence. So this week he went public with a post on Medium, putting public need to know ahead of his bug bounty from Apple, a bounty which, as expected from the secretive company, is contingent on keeping silent about known vulnerabilities for however many months or years Apple takes to fix them. Brian Krebs, where I found this story, opined on the similarity of this vulnerability to the classic USB thumb drive hack where you label a malicious USB key with something salacious like employee salaries and leave it in the parking lot. I don't think this one's quite that bad, but the social engineering principle is the same. The success of Apple's AirTags depends on your trust. Trust that the product is secure just because it has the Apple name attached to it. But it's still an electronic device, and it's still complicated. Connecting an unknown device to your personal systems will always carry risk, whether it's a USB stick, an AirTag, or a random shiny circular bit of plastic that says AOL in a brightly colored logo. Be careful, because the data contained therein might just be a lot worse than you bargained for. From the convenience-at-any-cost department, If there's one praise I will begrudgingly give Apple, it's that iOS has some pretty decent handset security features. iOS supports full device encryption, strong pin security or biometrics, but that's got its own issues and a standard encrypted backup and device wipe features that make it usually pointless to steal an iPhone for its data. Without going through the unlock sequence, you're really not getting in, but then they got to ruin it all by punching holes that the convenience bus can drive through. In this case, the hole is for Apple pay a wide sewage pipe that transports money from your bank account through the iPhone directly to any vendor with an NFC pad to tap. This kind of payment system represents the latest evolution in the triumph of convenience over financial planning that started in the 1980s with the widespread adoption of credit cards and even personal checks before that. Using cash for a transaction introduces friction into spending money. It requires you to see physically how much money you're spending. If you spend too much in a short time, you have to visit the teller again. Cash is inconvenient, and that's a feature. It makes you think about your spending, how much, and do you really need this item? It doesn't take a psychology degree to realize that the easier you make something do, the more likely people will be to do it. And for companies like Apple and Visa, who take a percentage of all money that flows through their platforms, there is a very strong incentive to persuade you to spend more money. So Apple Pay's biggest bit of friction is that you can only initiate a transaction when the phone is unlocked. This is a good thing from a security standpoint. It means that your phone won't be sending your hard-earned digital money to every NFC-enabled device you happen to walk by on the sidewalk. But some places having to unlock your phone is still just too inconvenient for the digital generation. For example, when entering a London tube station where phones are quickly replacing other forms of swipe cards, it would be far too simple to expect people to unlock their phones prior to reaching the turnstile. So, Apple Pay supports Express Transit mode. Released in May 2019 with iOS 12.3, Express Transit allows Apple Pay to run a transaction with certain specially anointed payees, uh, specifically transit operators, without unlocking your phone. Shortly thereafter, Samsung Pay rolled out a similar feature. If you think this makes it a great new attack surface for hackers, you're right. This week, researchers from the Universities of Birmingham and Surrey in the UK demonstrated a proof-of-concept for a replay attack against a locked iPhone with Apple Pay linked to a Visa card and Express Transit-enabled. By initiating a spoof transaction with the locked iPhone, they were able to record the data packets using a rooted Android phone, which could then relay those packets to any other device to be replayed in an arbitrary non-transit vector vendor. Apple Pay does have a number called the contactless limit above which all transactions are supposed to be specifically authorized by the user via biometrics or a PIN code, but the researchers were able to circumvent that limit by setting the approved by user bit in the replayed packet. Using this technique, they demonstrated a transfer of £1,000 from the phone's account to an arbitrary non-transit vendor without unlocking the iPhone. They only had to get within NFC range. Researchers first reported the vulnerability to security teams at both Apple and Visa, but neither company was willing to admit the bug was theirs. From the research paper, Apple suggested that the best solution was for Visa to implement additional fraud detection checks, explicitly checking the issuer application data and merchant category code. Meanwhile, Visa observed that the issue only applied to Apple, not Samsung Pay, so suggested that the fix should be made by Apple Pay. Lots of finger pointing, no fixing. Researchers noted that Samsung Pay is not vulnerable. Samsung's tap-and-go feature requires you to sign up with approved payees ahead of time and then the phone simply issues a zero-value transaction to signal the bank to transfer funds. So while the phone is vulnerable to the replay attack, no money can be transferred. They also noted the MasterCard is not vulnerable because they implement relay detection by timing the transaction. If the transaction is too slow, they assume the transaction is a relay and cancel it and ask make you do it again. While this attack can be used by particularly dexterous digital pickpocket discreetly tapping your phone in your pocket on a bus or a subway, the assailant incurs a much lower risk by simply stealing your phone, at which point they can make as many transactions as they want until you get home, log into iCloud, and shut off the account. You'd better use that Find My Phone quick. From the Attention Theft Economy Department, Google has announced they will be turning off support in Chrome for their Manifest V2 plugin API starting in January of 2023. Google has given extensions which use the API until then to migrate to Manifest V3. Okay, so APIs update to new versions all the time. Why is this news? Because if Chrome was a performance car, then Manifest V2 lets you tune the suspension, change engine timing, and fuel mix, and replace parts depending on conditions. Manifest V3 lets you adjust the mirrors and set the satnav destination. Google says publicly that the change is for security, and they're not wrong. One of the biggest sources of Chrome security issues is convincing users to install malware-laden extensions from the Chrome Web Store, which then turn your browser into part of a botnet or go further into infecting your operating system. So... What's the solution? Why doesn't Google just clean up the web store? Well, that would involve effort and policing. Google's company culture demands technical solutions to problems and not human ones. So Google arrived at the solution of crippling their extension API. Manifest V3 has no way to modify page data before it's been rendered, no way to store or access files on disk, and no reliable way to execute background tasks. Extensions are limited to reacting to page events and modifying how elements are displayed once Chrome has already rendered them. Google points out that over 90% of extensions have either already been converted or are convertible to Manifest V3, but that hardly seems compelling given that 90% of extensions are fart apps and cosmetic CSS plugins that change the color of a button. One class of extensions in that last 10% is ad blockers, which need access to a page before it's rendered in order to filter out unwanted elements. They also make use of constantly updated domain and regex block lists, which won't work under the new API. Without the ability to read files, the only way to respond to a new ad serving domain going up on the net would be to push an update to the web store, introducing an excessive delay. Raymond Hill, author of the most popular and effective blocker, UBlock Origin, has gone on record multiple times saying that UBO is impossible to rewrite using Manifest v3 as the API is incomplete. Not surprisingly, Google has turned a deft ear to complaints that they are breaking ad blockers. Google would lead you to believe that ad blockers are just an unfortunate casualty in their crusade to make the internet a safe space. Of course, since Google makes 66% of their revenue from search ads and 30% from other ads, it's not hard to attribute some malice toward ad blockers on the part of the company. Indeed, Google admitted to its investors in 2018 that ad blocking was a direct threat to their advertising revenue. Even if Google engineers are not actively working to defeat ad blockers, they are clearly incentivized to not prioritize making them work in the browser. And if you thought that the solution was to keeping your internet ad free was to just move to a different browser, I have bad news. Microsoft, Apple, and Mozilla have all put their weight behind manifest V3 and fully support it, which means that they're probably going to be deprecating V2 at some point as well. Spokespeople, spokes. Persons, spokes humanoids, whatever, for Brave and Vivaldi have said that they will continue to support the V2 APIs needed for ad blockers. It's not clear what the future of ad blocking looks like once Google makes their change to the Chromium source, but one thing is certain, for many ad block users, if you try to force them at gunpoint to embrace an internet full of ads, the only right answer is to take the bullet. From the charge all the things department, we have two stories out of Brazil and the EU having to do with putting electricity inside of an iPhone. When Apple released the iPhone 12 in late 2020, they did so without the charger, that small plastic brick that plugs into the wall and connects to the lightning to USB-C charging cable. Apple's public reasons are to reduce e-waste because most consumers already have an Apple-compatible charger and because Apple would like to move everybody to wireless charging so they can eventually shave a few pennies off of the manufacturing cost by removing the USB port from the phone the way they removed the headphone jack. Oh, I don't have any confirmation of that. I'm just speculating here, but it seems likely. New iPhone users who have neither a wireless charger nor the brick handy in their phone somewhere will have to purchase one of these accessories before they can charge their phone. It certainly doesn't hurt the company's bottom line that they're now helpfully selling something that used to come in the box. Note that Apple also no longer ships EarPods with the iPhone, so you'll have to buy those too if you want personalized audio. Apple's proprietary MagSafe charger will run an extra 40 bucks at your nearest Apple store. You can get a wireless charging pad elsewhere for cheaper. The iPhone is compatible with the Qi wireless charging standard, but just so you know, Apple devices are software limited to charge slower on chargers that they don't sell. Apple is also saving the planet with this move, so they say. Without a power adapter, they can use a smaller box for the iPhone, which means that more boxes fit on a pallet, which means fewer trucks, which reduce carbon emissions, something, 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 climate change. They didn't comment on how many extra trucks will be used to ship the missing accessories separately. Is all of this legal, you might ask? Well, it's not, according to the Brazilian consumer protection regulator Procon Sao Paulo who fined Apple 10.5 million real, which is about $2 million, back in March for refusing to include a charger with the iPhone 12 and forced the company to offer chargers to anyone in the state of Sao Paulo who requests it. This fine, which was the maximum allowed under Brazilian law and is roughly the amount of money that Tim Cook finds lodged in his armpit after a particularly restless night on the couch, clearly didn't convince the company since they released the iPhone 13 last week without a charger. Procon SP Executive Director Fernando Capez says the agency intends to repeat their impotent gesture. Also in charging news, a European Commission rip proposal has moved forward to set USB-C as the standard port required on all smartphones, tablets, cameras, headphones, portable speakers, and handheld video game systems sold in the EU. The Commission said that they moved forward with the legislation because companies were not able to agree on a common solution despite a decade of talks. When they say companies, of course they mean Apple, who continue to use their own lightning connector on the iPhone, while every other major vendor sells phones that use the USB-C standard. Regulators said that the lightning to USB-C adapter cable shipped with the iPhone 12 and 13 does not meet the requirement. Apple must change the connector on the phone. Apple released a statement suggesting that strict regulation will harm innovation in the marketplace and ultimately harm consumers. While I fully agree with this sentiment, I do feel compelled to point out the hypocrisy of favoring minimal state interference when it comes to charging cables, but not when it comes to patents, DRM, copyright, trademarks, right to repair, trade secrets, resellers, or competing app stores. Once a proposal is accepted by EU member states, companies are given two years to comply. I'd like to extend deep thanks to Brian Janak for being this show's executive producer and to John Fletcher for creating our great intro and sweeper jingles you've been enjoying. And to all of the producers of this show who have donated their time, talent, and treasure to make it a success, which I think is gonna happen soon, I hope. Many of you have already signed up for recurring monthly donations through PayPal, which is greatly appreciated. It gives me a lot of incentive to continue doing the show and it proves that there are real people out there that I let down if they don't get their angry tech news. So again, thank you to all of this show's producers. I apologize to you for being a couple days late with this one. This solo podcasting thing isn't nearly as easy as just showing up, talking into a mic and letting my co-host do all of the post-production work. Oh yeah. And if you're not a producer yet, no apologies at all. You get what you pay for. Angry tech news is released on the value for value model. We don't take advertising and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. So, if you got value out of listening to Angry Tech News, please send value back. Go over to AngryTechNews.com and click the Donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send whatever you think this show has been worth it to you. Be it $5, $25, or $500. I don't judge. Stick around after the outro if you want to hear a Bem rant sent in by my brother Bemlet about tailgating. He can't quite consistently match my level of rants. I think he's a little too well-adjusted for that, but he's still a Bemrose. That's it for me. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer with a mic. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News.
1: This has been Angry Tech News with the
0: Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.
1: Good day to you. It's time for a Bemrand. Light. Tailgating. What the fuck is this male domination, respect my authority hey, bullshit? I mean, let's start with a definition. I'm not talking about the Silicon Valley's imaginary quote unquote cyber attack where someone follows someone else into a secured building. Is it really a cyber attack if someone is doing it physically? And really, is it a secure building if you can just follow some dweeb in and eh, that's beside the point uh i'm not talking about uh, what happens two hours before your local college or football team plays uh, american or european it doesn't really matter i'm cool with this kind of means, seriously it's just a bunch of people getting hammered and having a good time maybe some brief altercations where one person asserts their mental incompetence i am sorry i mean a uh, uh, physical prowess over another but nothing serious I'm talking about a driver following too close to another at a high rate of speed on some type of motorway. We're talking about tailgating on a road, like likely a highway of some sort. Someone made us mad while we were driving. Maybe they cut in front of you and are preventing you from doing 15 over the posted speed limit. Maybe they didn't merge into the travel lane and they've been cruising in the passing lane. Fuck, I don't know. Maybe they've been driving for the past seven minutes with their right turn blinker on. I don't know. Maybe they even maliciously brake checked you and they really are an asshole. What are you going to do about it? I know. I'm going to tailgate them. I'm going to get a meter off of their bumper and drive angry for a mile or two. That'll learn them. Oh, they didn't respect my tailgating? Let me flash my headlights at them or honk my horn. That'll teach them. Let's think about this logically for a second. Someone did something, either malicious or just stupid, and I'm going to reduce my safety margin significantly just to prove a point? Think about that. Now let's look at it from the other side. I pulled out in front of someone. Damn, I didn't realize that person was going 15 over. I thought, I don't know, they'd drive the speed limit or some shit. Hold the phone, they're tailgating me? Well, don't I feel like an asshole? No, no I don't. Now I feel like this bitch is going to get what they deserved. In fact, you know what? I think I'm going to slow down to make this rule-breaking asshole slow down himself. Okay, okay. What if I really did screw the pooch? What if I didn't realize you were coming? Now they look back and see someone tailgating and go, Shit, I fucked this guy over. I'm not going to speed up. I'm going to go slow. I'm going to hope you pass me. Third option. I mean, just third kind of concept. This guy really is an asshole. He saw you coming. You start killing. Oh. Now it's fun time. You think you're pissed at me now? Let's see what I can do to really piss you off. No matter the situation, I really can't think of a way this comes out as a win. It's really like the dog who's trying to hump a stranger's leg. Nobody wins, nobody learns anything from the situation. I mean, really the best case scenario is someone is a little embarrassed about what happened. Worst case scenario is somebody just wrecked their dick or car. Or, I don't know, one of those. Driving is an exercise in trust. You trust that someone isn't going to hit you and they trust that you're not going to hit them. Stop penis measuring and just get where you're going.